This is RMIT University's Art, Design and Media podcast, and you're listening to a special RMIT culture and student-produced series, Literature and Ideas. This podcast is created on the unceded land of the Woiwurrung and Bunwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge their ancestors and elders, past and present. Welcome to the RMIT Culture Podcast, produced in collaboration with the Bowen Street Press. This episode, hosted by Callie Buellman, unpacks how writers can pitch their narrative non-fiction manuscripts to publishers in straightforward steps. A content warning before we begin. This podcast episode includes mentions of sexual assault, which may be triggering for some listeners. Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast. Last episode we talked about how to develop narrative non-fiction ideas and why research is so important in the writing process with some experts in the field. Today we'll be exploring how to pitch your narrative non-fiction work to a potential publisher. This can be a super scary step for new writers, so if that sounds like you, listen closely to hear how it all works. You might remember Ronnie Scott, who teaches creative writing at RMIT and definitely knows his way around a narrative non-fiction book proposal. We'll also once again hear from author and RMIT alumni Emily Clements, as well as Hardy Grant non-fiction publisher Arwen Summers, who has over 13 years experience in publishing and has a particular interest in narrative non-fiction. These two spoke on the 2020 Spark Prize panel. So, once we have an idea and have spent some time developing our idea through research, it's time to begin the proposal. Putting together a proposal for a publisher can be really intimidating, but we're here to clarify the process. Firstly, we had Ronnie tell us the components of a book proposal. The components that, that they sort of share across publishers that are pretty standard for a nonfiction book proposal that an agent might send out as well. A title, a synopsis. Uh, they'll want something about you, so they'll want they'll basically want you to be able to say why you're the right person to write the book. They'll want a basically sample table of contents, which is essentially the shape of the book in more detail. And they'll want sample chapters usually, um, so it, it would be super, super rare for someone to pick up a book based on a proposal with no sample chapters because it just all comes through in the writing and the approach. Sometimes they will want more, um, more sales-oriented material from you as well, so that will be like writing a couple of paragraphs about competitor titles, competing titles. Uh, basically, you you want to be able to say, my book is um, this book meets this book, and this is why ideally there are two books that have a market already, or three books or whatever it is that you're, you're saying your book is like, um, so that the publisher or potential publisher can envision how they would how they would sell it, how they would get it in the hands of a reader. That's the basic stuff that you'd put in a book proposal. Right. So a lot of things to think about then. I think one of the most important things to get right is your synopsis, since it's your best chance to get your idea out there. So crossing to author Emily Clements, who shares a bit about how she approached the task of writing the synopsis for her book, The Lotus Eaters. Emily initially pitched to Hardy Grant publisher Arwen at an Emerging Writers Festival speed pitching event, and we'll hear Arwen's thoughts on synopses afterwards. So I wrote, The Lotus Eaters is a coming-of-age memoir set between Sydney and Hanoi. I am 19 years old. After an explosive argument with my best friend of six years leaves me stranded overseas, I arrive in Vietnam and almost immediately stumble into an oppressive relationship with the hotel bellboy. My sense of self-worth circles men, my body, men in my body, like a drain. I travel back to Laos for a visa run in mid-April. After a night of partying, I narrowly avoid gang rape in a Laotian hotel. 
The incident marks a spiraling down of self-worth that leaves me insecure in my own right to say no. The patterns of blame and shame, first imprinted in adolescence, etch themselves into a new context. In Hanoi, I leave my controlling bellboy boyfriend for another who assaults me in the middle of the night. The second relationship ends in May after I travel to Safa and sleep with a local bartender. The bartender, with criminal connections, turns up in Hanoi and abducts me. He keeps me in his rural hometown until I lie to him and tell him that yes, I will move to Safa with him. When I return to Hanoi, my motorbike runs out of petrol. I go back home with the man who offers to help. I learn that sex is both a symptom and a cure for a deep fear borrowed in my gut of something I do not know the name of. So that's half a page. Um, if I had a full page, I would maybe expand a little bit um, and maybe touch a little bit more on theme. I have had a publisher tell me before that you cannot write a memoir unless you're famous or you chopped your own leg off on top of a mountain. Nevertheless, I felt like uh, I was quite conscious of my selling point. What is my selling point? So I wanted to make sure that in my synopsis, there was a sense of my voice and there was a sense of how I would be writing about these, uh, these events and how uh, it would pull the reader through. Too much detail can be completely mm -hmm. overwhelming. You lose sight of what the point of difference is. And you as an author should be really clear on what your point of difference is. As Emily just said, you knew what your point of difference was uh, with what you were trying to do. You need to communicate that in the synopsis. Um, and that might be through the events themselves or it might be through the themes. You could be explicit about it uh, or it might be implicit in what you're writing. It has to have a point of difference. So I understand what will make this book memorable and why people will pick it up and pass it to their friends and say, you must read this. I reckon that the best way to structure an effective synopsis is to tell the book uh, from start to finish. I think that the, the real challenge in writing a synopsis is that you have to do some proper like thinking, thinking work about what the book is really about. Um, you'd want to start off probably you know, I say write the whole thing in, in, in the order that it will happen in the book, but you would definitely want to start off with a couple of sentences that, that sort of um, summarize it. I was going to say synopsize it, summarize it further, um, you know, that makes it that um, presents what you will present in the synopsis, but in an even pithier way. And I think that's a great thing to start off a synopsis with because the reader will have it in their head as they read the rest of it and will be able to con contextualize the way that it develops. Um, but I think that a synopsis should not be tricksy. The, the point is for it to be condensed, clear to the point. We wanted to know if there's one thing Ronnie thinks we should never leave out of a synopsis, what is it? The ending. That's the, the thing that people do do leave out the most often when they haven't uh, kind of seen example synops synopses. I think that the temptation is to not give it away and the temptation is to, you know, to intrigue, but it's about laying out information more than it's about intriguing. After the synopsis, we can tackle the chapter outline. Here's Ronnie to tell us what a chapter outline is and why it's so important. The chapter outline is important because it shows um, the components of the book and shows them in order. And, you know, for all of the, the joy and magic of a synopsis where it's about clarity, transparency, concision, um, you know, the joy and magic of a full-length book is often in details and byways. And it's great to be able to look at a chapter outline 
because it, it sometimes doesn't totally match up to what the synopsis is. Um, sometimes it's like, oh, this book from the synopsis looks as though it will be primarily about thing X, but seven of the 12 chapters are about this kind of other strange element of it. And that can be a strength or it can be something to be looked at and developed out of it at the proposal stage, or it could be something to really run with and to for the author to be conscious of in a way that maybe they haven't been before they've spoken to an editor. Um, that's all stuff that it's very hypothetical, but it comes through in the details more than it comes through in a title a synopsis or a, um, you know other elements of a pitch. It's a plan of attack as well for the author, as much as it's a plan of the chapters for the reader of the proposal. The chapter outline forces you to get real about what you're actually going to write and how you're going to write it. And it might be that it changes entirely. You will not be held to this. You will not be signing a contracting blood to say that this chapter outline that you submit for an idea will be the shape of the book. But it, I think, allows you as a, a writer to think about how you're going to tackle what you're going to tackle and how you will plot that narrative arc. If it's personal events, then how are you going to shape that? What are you going to show and what are you not going to show and how are you going to structure it in each chapter? If it's an investigation, how will that unfold? And you may not know. There might be things that you discover in the process of writing or investigating or researching that come to light. It's particularly useful if your book incorporates multiple timelines or multiple themes just to really see it uh, laid out in an A4 kind of way. Uh, I think particularly uh, through university and even high school or beyond that, we become used to working in smaller form, so 1,000 words, 2,000 words. And it can be harder to wrangle, like, the structure of what can be 70,000 words or 100,000 words and actually really see the big picture of it. It's really helpful just as a writer to be able to see what, what keeps coming up, what is maybe uh, being flogged a little bit too hard, what can be moved around, uh, what, the, what the arcs are and what you can do to really, like, bring those out in a way that um, services the narrative. So moving on to the sample chapter or work in progress. This is arguably the most important part of the entire proposal. Arwen tells us what a good sample chapter looks like. It doesn't necessarily have to be the beginning of your book, especially if you already have a book in progress. I'm looking for something that will best show uh, your voice on the page and will show us how you are able to, if we have your chapter structure, we can look and say, okay, so this was chapter five dealing with these issues. How are they addressed in that chapter? How is it put together? Because if we're talking about a narrative arc for the whole book, each chapter also has a narrative arc. Um, think of it even as a mini book that you are sending through. So the, the chapter sample that you send through is an opportunity for you to show us that you understand or that you have an idea of how to put your narrative arc in place, even on 3,000 words or 2,000 words. And over to Ronnie on how we should choose the right part of the manuscript to provide as a sample. Basically, people are asking, should it be chapters one and two? I think that's the real question, right? Should it just be the start of the book? Um, but in reality, writers, are, like the first chapter of a draft is often kind of bad. It's often the thing that has to come back and be written um, most or rewritten most thoroughly at the end. And most editors say uh, just truly the two best chapters. Um, because it's not hard to set something up and contextualize something with a 
you know, previously in this book kind of paragraph at the top of a sample chapter, a sample chapter is about treatment, approach, writing, pace, tone, um, voice, characters, style, you know, all of the stuff that we love from a piece of narrative, nonfiction or otherwise. Uh, and I, I truly don't think it matters if it's chapter one or two or if it's chapter three and 15 or whatever it might possibly be. going to talk a little bit about titles now. Back to Ronnie to hear about his creative process when choosing a title and then how he might recommend emerging writers approach the task. Titles for pretty much everything that I have ever written have been the most instinctual and least easily articulated um, kind of part of the process. But I think that it's based on on sight and sound and the, the, just the stuff that makes a phrase stick out to us for its um, for its felicity or for its um, just ple- pleasurableness. The big one with nonfiction books is that a writer will want a very kind of elegant, short, poetic title, as all writers want, and the editor will insist on a long subtitle that makes it totally clear to the reader what will be in this book. So I think that the best advice for an emerging writer is don't be too precious about your title because someone might change it and they might be right. Ronnie also gave us some brilliant advice to underline or highlight words or phrases in your manuscript since a title will often appear in the text. That's more of a tangible technique, but let's go to Emily now who discusses a more spontaneous title choosing process. I think it just came to me um, in a, you know, lightning bolt of inspiration, as they say. Um, And I was extremely excited uh, because I felt like it encompassed um, a bunch of themes that I was wrestling with. Um, It's quite evocative as, uh, you know, like Lotus has a lot of symbolic resonance. Um, We think of uh, spirituality, but we also think of, uh, you know, the flowers a kind of symbol of like feminine sexuality in a lot of ways. And then eating is like a way of consummation and also a kind of devouring and uh, changing. Titles are pretty key, but so is a bio. Whoever is receiving your pitch needs to know why you are the right person to be writing this book. And here's Ronnie to shed some light on what makes a great bio. And funnily enough, being funny isn't the best idea. Usually a funny bio is tempting for a writer and reads really badly to someone else. I think we like, maybe that's just a mean thing to to think and to say, but uh, I I just find funny bios usually fall flat. Um, Obviously not everyone does because people write them and people use them. But I think that even if you're going to do something funny in your if, if it's a funny book proposal you still probably want to err on the side of professionalism i think of course funny bios sometimes work i think usually you can rely on a mix of of writing credentials and reasons why you have a relationship to or an interest in a story um and writing credentials can be things like prior publications you can think about formal qualifications like degrees or you can think about the time you worked in a bookstore or you can think about you know ways in which you have performed as a writer in other roles and jobs or communication and storytelling narrative research all that stuff can go into a bio and can can act as a writing based qualification but also if you're writing narrative nonfiction, it usually is in some way about your relationship to the story ideally it can be sort of a fun and interesting exercise for the writer to actually think you know why 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 me and this story 
to make sure you're putting your best professional foot forward, we have Ronnie share his top tips on the practical components of a pitch, like formatting and polish. The huge one is proofreading, and that's like the thing that that separates, I think, most pieces of writing that people want to spend more time with in a publishing context from what they they don't and what looks amateurish. And I think that proofreading is one of those things that anyone can do and get better at with time or find somebody else to, to do kind of with or, or for them. I don't think it should be a mark of professionalism, especially if we're thinking about stories that come from different places and, you know, different backgrounds. And right, editors are always talking about wanting stories from people who aren't um, who don't think of themselves as writers or who co- come from different fields, right? Um, for example, and and you have to think that kind of that that polish is something that publishers and editors can can bring to that project sometimes. But I think it does make a real difference, and it just shows that you've put work into it, and probably that you've shown it to somebody else before you've shown it to a publisher. I think that's probably what people have in their heads. So I think that proofreading is probably the big one. But in terms of formatting, just clear and readable and um, like you would present any document in a professional context, probably 12-point font, probably probably not single spaced, but I don't think it really matters if it's 1.5 or double spaced. That's the kind of thing that people sometimes get tripped up on. But but as long as it's clear and logical and consistent, I think that that's probably what presents you in your best light. Things like proofreading and making sure your document is spaced correctly in the right type and everything, they're important. But it's exactly what Ronnie said, it's polish. So as long as you've got your voice and your content, the polish just helps you stand out a little bit more. Now for Ronnie's biggest tip on pitching to a publisher. I think it's a, it's a bit of awareness of the context that they're writing in. So if you are writing to a particular publisher, I think it's a great idea to put right in your cover letter something about that publisher, um, to think about the kinds of things that they have published before, think about why your work is belongs with that publisher. I mean, uh, sometimes writers are just thinking about landing their work with a publisher. And of course, of course, every writer is thinking about that. But Publishers sort of, I think, are, are very conscious of what what they do that other publishers don't do. You know, the thing that makes them them, uh, and it's really lovely to work with a writer who has done some of that thinking as well and some of that research. I think that's a, a way to show that you have thought about what it is that you're doing and that you're not just sending a proposal out randomly to a hundred places. So it's key to keep things relevant to the publishers that you're pitching to. Great. And a final piece of advice? Just spend time with your idea. I think that there's sort of no replacement for spending time with an an idea and for trying out a bunch of different things. And it can be, you know, maybe the way to write two great sample chapters is to write a bunch of different sample chapters and pick the ones that you want to polish and develop for the proposal. Yeah, I think that that one that has been been lived in for a while and one that is is thorough is is one that stands out sometimes as well. Fantastic advice from Ronnie. Just sit with things and take your time. It works for a lot of things in life, but especially writing. Well, I hope all you writers out there found a tip or two to help you on your way to pitching narrative nonfiction. Enjoy writing your amazing true stories. You've been listening to the RMIT Culture Podcast. We'd like to thank our guests, Arwen Summers, Emily Clements and Ronnie Scott, our production team, Carly Godden, Kelly Buellman, Joel Humphreys, Mia Purvis and Sophie Newnham. For more episodes, subscribe to RMIT Culture wherever you get your podcasts.